0: Hi and welcome to the Healthcare Improvement Podcast, brought to you by Healthcare Improvement Scotland, an organisation that enables people to experience the best quality of health and social care. I'm Leon Armstrong.
1: And I'm Stephen Ferguson. There's strong evidence that when patients are treated as partners in their care, then safety, patient satisfaction and health outcomes improve, giving patients, their families and the wider community opportunities to share their experiences and concerns, as well as their expectations and preferences, increases equity and a sense of trust.
0: The overall vision for the World Health Organization's Global Patient Safety Action Plan is for a world in which no one is harmed in healthcare and every patient receives safe and respectful care every time, everywhere. Patient and family engagement is a key element in helping achieve this vision.
1: A number of initiatives and programmes of work within our own organisation are aimed at improving patient safety. And at the heart of that work is our engagement with patients and their support networks. As users of the health and social care system, the perspectives of patients, families and caregivers are invaluable in improving patient safety.
0: To find out more about how the patient voice has contributed towards increased patient safety in health and social care settings, we'll be speaking with a number of professionals from our organisation, as well as Lisa McDowell, a senior charge nurse at the Jubilee Hospital in Grampian, and we'll also be joined by Gareth Burhill, who lost his mum in the Vale of Leven C. difficile outbreak of 2007 to 2008, and is now a public partner with our Excellence in Care team.
1: But first, we'll speak with Dr. Simon Watson. Simon is our organisation's medical director and director of safety. Over to you, Leona.
0: Thanks for joining us, Simon. You've spoken in the past about how vivid memories of difficult conversations around patient safety have affected you and what matters to you as a clinician. I'm interested to hear if you can tell us just a bit more about what made those conversations difficult.
2: Thank you very much, Leona. Well, I'll use an example that's quite an old one now, really from a different era. It was almost 30 years ago, but it, it's, it was, had quite an impact on me uh, as a young doctor. The situation was I was working in a, an acute hospital not long after I'd qualified, and I was very concerned because I was involved with the care of a patient who had a life-threatening condition and needed a continuous infusion of medicine to stay alive. And if it was interrupted, even for a period of, of minutes, then potentially their life would be placed at risk. And I was aware that a particular risk was when they were leaving the emergency department and going to the ward. Because of a concern about losing equipment, there had been cases in which pumps were stopped, medicines were, infusions were disconnected, so that a piece of equipment wouldn't leave an emergency department and not come back. And I understood the issue, but this then happened for a patient who I was looking after, and I came to them and realized they weren't getting this life-saving medicine. I was really concerned, I raised it with the nurse who was looking after the patient, And it was a really busy day. And she got very upset because she thought, I think I was making some general comment about her skills as a nurse, which I wasn't. It was about this individual patient. And things basically escalated so that I was um, hauled into an office by the senior consultant and told that I shouldn't accuse people of bad practice, how upsetting me raising this had been. And I had to take it all back and go and apologize. And it's one of those conversations that stuck with me because I said, look, I didn't want to upset anybody. and Of course, I'll go and say sorry if they're upset. But this is really serious. You can't have people in this situation. It puts lives at risk. And uh, it was made pretty clear to me that it wasn't my place to say things like that to a very senior doctor um, and that I'd better reconsider. And I basically said that I wouldn't. And this should be taken seriously. And then I realized I had nowhere to go with this. Uh, And the conversation ended with that individual reminding me that they were in a senior position in terms of junior doctors training in the region, which was pretty, the threat was pretty clear. So nothing else happened. I did check and the patient got to the ward and they were okay despite that. Um, But I then spent the next four months agonizing over whether my career was over. And that wasn't helped by um, people coming to see me privately, more senior medical trainees and others, just to remind, they'd obviously heard about this and just to say, look, you know, you need to have a word with that guy because... He could be responsible for your next job. It was horrendous and it really brought it home to me in later life just how threatening it can be to speak up about issues of patient safety if they don't land right, if people feel threatened by them and if suddenly this sort of silent implied power um, is used to undermine people who who have something to say. Now as it turned out nothing bad happened to my career, Um, I carried on, and with the perspective of almost 30 years later, I do realize that that was a different world. The institution is a very different institution now, and also they were probably having a horrendous day and didn't set out to bully and intimidate a junior doctor. But it did remind me that raising these concerns, particularly for people who feel they don't have power and may be new to a system, is extremely difficult emotionally, requires quite a lot of courage, and requires a degree of psychological safety, and it's incredibly easy to undermine that. And that's what happened to me. So good news is, it's almost 30 years hence, the world has changed immeasurably. Uh, I don't think things like that would happen in that way, but the potential is still there for people who don't feel like they have a lot of power um, to find it extremely difficult to raise safety concerns, and this is something we should all be aware of.
0: Really interesting story, uh, Simon. I'm glad, obviously, it did all work out in the end. But um, Mm. yeah, it's definitely some some food for thought for all of us. So thinking about where we are now with patient safety, what do you think has been the biggest shift in attitudes?
2: Well, I think the biggest one of all is that whereas back then, even suggesting that something might not be safe was almost unhearable, and apparently almost unsayable. Uh, that's changed completely. It's not seen as uh, a threat or a weapon to say I'm, not, I'm concerned about the safety of the way we're doing things. Uh, it is seen as a positive thing and something that's about continuously improving. We do have a much more sophisticated view of safety. I think we realize we're in a complex business. There's a lot that can go wrong in healthcare Um, it requires a lot of effort to make sure that things go right and the biggest difference is that acknowledgement that safety is not something that's a given it's something that needs to be talked about it needs to be discussed and people's voices need to be heard so we can get it right and also um, we're much more sophisticated in terms of having structured ways of talking about safety structured ways of testing out new ideas a whole plethora of systems around clinical governance that give lots of opportunities for things to be picked up and i suppose in basic terms it's moved from something that was definitely in the shadows and not to be spoken about to something that's out there in the light and people do discuss and again it doesn't mean it's perfect and it certainly doesn't mean that there should be complacency but over the course of my career which is nearly 30 years long now uh, there's really been a sea change in that that whole culture of this being something that people do talk about now. So there's more to do, but there's been massive progress since since the 1990s.
0: That's good to hear. From your point of view, Simon, what difference does the inclusion of the patient voice make in helping to shape and deliver safe care?
2: It's absolutely critical. It's as simple as that. We will never, ever have a proper understanding of how best to provide care for those who need it unless we have the people receiving care being heard, being encouraged to speak and to tell us what we're doing. And that includes to tell us what we're doing well, which will probably be most of it, but also to tell us where we can change things. And healthcare systems are really complicated. There's no getting away from that. And to get a proper understanding, it rarely if ever comes from a single person or a single group's perspective. So there's validity to what the people who manage and have oversight of systems think. They all have insights into how systems work that others perhaps don't have. The people who are delivering those care processes on the front line, the nurses, the doctors, the other clinicians and others who are involved, they all have a really good understanding of how it works. But the missing bits of the jigsaw will come from those who've experienced care and those who've been relatives of those experiencing care. And without that, we simply don't have any way of getting a proper picture. And I think most would agree that morally, that last group is the one whose voice needs to be heard most of all. It's not to take the place away from others, but the people who are on the receiving end always should be given a special place and be listened to particularly carefully. And I think I've seen in in my career that targeted programmes of improvement in safety always work better when there's a strong voice of those with lived experience right up the middle of it. So it's an essential as far as I'm concerned.
0: And so in terms of improvement, how important is it for the health and care system to place, again, the voices and rights of people and communities at the heart of service improvements?
2: Well again I think I think for all the reasons I've said before it's 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 absolutely essential and it's not to take away anybody else's place but these are these are really complicated decisions we won't get all the perspectives we need to make the best decisions unless we've got the people who manage and have accountability for services the people who deliver them but particularly those who are going to be receiving the services able to tell us what needs to be done No single group will have a perfect perspective on it, but the sophisticated and right thing to do is to make sure that all of those voices are heard in the right way. And uh, I'm proud that I'm part of an organisation that devotes a huge amount of time, effort and expertise to making sure the voices of people and communities are heard, and in particular, the voices of those who tend to be less heard.
0: Thanks for your time, Simon. It has been really interesting to hear your reflections on how far we've progressed with patient safety over the years. Over to you, Stephen.
1: Thanks, Leona. We've heard how crucial the patient voice is when considering what improvements need to be made in health and social care settings. And that leads us nicely onto a national initiative called Excellence in Care. Now, Excellence in Care aims to ensure people have confidence that they will receive a consistent standard of high quality care, no matter where they receive treatment in NHS Scotland. Commissioned by the Scottish Government in response to the Vale of Leave and Hospital Inquiry's recommendations, Excellence in Care exists to improve and coordinate the way quality care services are delivered. We're now joined by Gareth Borhill, a public partner with our organisation's Excellence in Care team. Gareth, can you tell us what happened to your family that caused you to take an active role in helping to improve patient
3: safety? Yeah, afternoon, Stephen. The the reason I primarily got involved was uh, something my mother was one of the patients who was impacted by and lost her life in the C difficile outbreak in the Villa Hospital between 2007 and 2008. With the initial criminal investigation, then a full public inquiry into the outbreak, I personally was obviously questioned and took part as a witness in those investigations. And I was very interested into what happened that caused such an impact, not just to my own family, but to, to all the other families impacted. I, I had the publication of Lord McLean's report. It, it would have been very easy for me just to walk away and leave the many organisations to then make the improvements recommended by Lord McLean and continue with my own life going forward and the majority of the families affected did that and there's absolutely no disrespect to them but myself and two other families stepped forward when we were given an opportunity to become a public partner on the reference group in late 2015. Personally I think having been so much involved with the outbreak itself, all the investigations, the public inquiry and being critical of many aspects of, of the care provided. it was only right for me to share those experiences with others who were tasked then with ensuring similar things don't happen again. Also for myself to give something positive back. it's easy uh, to criticize, but I think it's it's also more important that you try and help uh, out in the future.
1: And that's led you to be uh, a public partner within our Excellence in Care programme. What does that role entail?
3: Yeah, Stephen, the the, the role entails joining the regular meetings which have mostly been online obviously since the Covid uh, outbreak, but taking part in those discussions and reviewing the proposals observing how progress is made with regards addressing all the action points made in Lord Maclean's report. It's very important that I'm critically bringing my own experiences over the care of my, my late mother and other patients and we, we now have valuable and positive work being carried out to all patients and their families in the future and we, we follow and really importantly the terms of reference that the board has been given. It's very, very much my own experiences as a family or a public member and not as a health professional that I believe are so important to be heard and considered by the the other professionals on on the board. What's that experience been like for you? Surprisingly, Stephen, it's been positive. I very much appreciate the respect shown to me by the the health professionals on on the board, some of whom hold very senior positions in the NHS in Scotland and other health uh, support groups. My voice and comments are listened to and respected by the other board members. I'm sure it, I'm sure at times my comments are an irritant to some people, but it's important we all keep them back to the, the reasons why this board was formed and ensure that all those were impacted by the veil even leaving outbreak have a, a voice in shaping future healthcare provision and best working practices in the future.
1: And for you, excellence in care, what does that term mean?
3: For me, it's, it's actually doing the simple things and the very basic things, doing them very well on every time and on every occasion, no matter the circumstances or pressures put on any healthcare worker or professional. For those people to treat the patient in front of them as, as they would do a member of their own family and to conduct themselves and act as their own basic and professional training indicates that they should be behaving. Tragically, it was the lack of attention to and observation of these basic or fundamental acts that caused the majority of the failings for the, the incidents that the Villa leaving.
1: And you've experienced yourself now what it's like to share your personal experiences in order to improve care. Um, how important do you think it is for the voices of patients, families, carers when it comes to delivering safe care?
3: Stephen, I think it's very important that these voices are heard. Ultimately, they are the customers of the healthcare being provided, and only through meaningful and open dialogue can that service be reviewed and adjusted to ensure that the very best of service is provided every day to every single patient in every hospital throughout Scotland, no matter the other direct and indirect pressures on a modern health service provision and the the workers involved. Thank
1: you very much indeed, Gareth. It's been a real pleasure to listen to your um, your story and your experiences of how you are personally helping to improve care. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Stephen.
1: And back to you, Leona, to introduce our next guest.
0: Thanks, Stephen. Community engagement is a key part of our organisation. We regularly engage with members of the public, carers and community groups on a variety of health related topics. We do this through a series of reports we call Gathering Views and through our Citizens Panel. Here to talk more about both of these areas of work and how they contribute towards increased patient safety is Claire Morrison, our Director of Community Engagement and System Redesign. Thanks for joining us, Claire. If we could start by talking about the Gathering Views reports and the Citizens Panel. Could you tell us a bit more about them and how they help make a difference?
4: Hi, Leona, and first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of the podcast today. It's great to be able to talk about some of our work. So um, both the Citizens Panel and Gathering Views are about hearing the voices of people and their views on health and care within the purpose really of informing policies and services, and they take quite different approaches. So the citizens panel is made up of around a thousand members of the public, and, and we seek their views through regular surveys. And that gives us that broad snapshot of public opinion. The panel members come from right across the whole country, and it's been set up so it reflects the demographics of the Scottish population. So matched in terms of things like age profile and deprivation. And then our gathering views work is a much deeper dive on a particular topic. So we will speak to a smaller sample of people than the citizens' panel, but it's much more detailed. So we use things like focus groups and one-to-one interviews to understand people's views. And we involve a different group of people for each gathering views. So we'll look for perhaps particular lived or living experience on the topic we're seeking views on, or it might be about a specific medical condition or people who live in a particular area. Um, And that allows us to do things like understand the barriers people face with accessing health and care services. So they really complement each other that wide snapshot of public opinion and then that rich understanding um, that the Gathering Views gives us. Thanks,
0: Claire. That was a really helpful explanation. Going back to earlier this year, we published a Gathering Views report that found people living with chronic pain said it was really important to them that staff listen and understand the impact that it has on their lives. What's the outcome of that report? So we were asked
4: to produce that report by Scottish government to help inform their development of a framework for pain management service delivery. And you're absolutely right. We found that most participants felt there was a lack of understanding about how chronic pain impacted their day to day life. And that that was both um, in terms of health and care staff, but also more widely and um, family and friends. And they really felt that if people had a better knowledge and awareness of the impact that pain was having on them, it might improve the services that are provided and so the report outlined um seven recommendations for scottish government and um, for them to consider in terms of that that implementation plan that they're now developing and and it was things like developing training for healthcare staff um uh, for people who ha- and also for the individuals who have the pain Um, too it was about a uh, provision of wider support for people um that things like nutritional advice and exercise and alternative therapies and it was about um in building effective feedback opportunities for people in pain services so we really believe that hearing those voices of people who live with conditions is just a vital part Of improving services and and we we really much hope um, that because Scottish Government asked us to gather those views that they will then take that forward within that framework for pain management.
0: Excellent. You mentioned that the report highlighted the importance of patient feedback, so just how important is the patient voice when it comes to improving services?
4: It's so important. So I think all of us who work in health and care services, we we think we know what it's like to receive a service, but none of us actually know what it's like for that individual person in front of us. And and even though most of us may have used health and care services at some time, every individual person's experience um, is individual. So we need to learn from everybody and every piece of feedback is vital. So one of the things that we in Healthcare Improvement Scotland talk about regularly is, is you can't design a service or you can't improve, The service without involving the people who use the service. Um, And engagement involves lots of different activities to seek people's views, and and feedback is part of that. So, what people have told us is they want a range of different feedback opportunities, they want clear processes for providing feedback, they want the ability to use different tools such as digital routes, as well as paper and phone. Um, It's about making it easy and accessible for everyone to provide feedback, but it's not just providing feedback, it's also what we then do with it. So we have to understand and have clear processes for considering the feedback and to close the loop as well. So if someone's taking the time to give us some feedback, we need to tell them what's happened as a result of that as well. So yeah, feedback is absolutely vital.
0: So Claire, looking um, at statistics, in a recent citizens panel report, 72% of survey respondents said they would take up the offer of the COVID-19 vaccine in the future. How does having that feedback from members of the public help shape our future vaccination programmes?
4: So it's it's absolutely essential. So if we take um, that statistic, so that overall positive attitude that 72% of people said they would have the vaccine again, But that also meant there were 17% who weren't sure and 12% who said they wouldn't have it. So understanding why people make these decisions is is vital. So the main reason people said they would decline the vaccine was a concern about side effects. So knowing this means more can be done to provide information um, about side effects to help people make a more informed choice in future. And, And one of the reasons people said that they weren't so sure about would they have it or not next time was they weren't sure if it would actually stop them catching COVID. So again, we can do more to provide information about how having the vaccine reduces the risk of having a more severe infection. So all of that understanding really helps us provide the best information to enable people to make those choices.
0: That's really good to know, Claire. Clearly, people and communities need to be involved in the planning and development of care services and the decisions that impact how these services are run. So by engaging patients in these conversations, how does that improve the safety of services?
4: So actively involving uh, patients in planning and shaping healthcare services really does improve safety. As as I said earlier, that meaningful engagement is vital to really understand the service from a service user's perspective. So so a simple example of this is the information that people receive about a new medicine that they have to take. And if that information is designed with people's involvement, um, so it's clear and it's understandable and it's accessible, then it's much more likely they're going to be able to. To follow the advice uh, provided so that might be about how to take the medicine safely or it might be about what to do if certain side effects occur if that information is inaccessible then the person might not know how to take the medicine in a way um that, that means it might not work properly or they might not recognize the side effect um, and they might not be able to get the advice that they need and um, another example is about accessing um, services so Someone who has dementia, who who also has some sight loss, could experience real difficulties in, in interpreting what they're seeing um, and that could increase their risk of falls. So ensuring services have taken that into account in terms of how people move around a room can, again, really improve safety. So by engaging with people, we can really learn how to make services safer and ultimately to improve people's care.
0: Thanks so much, Claire. Some really great insights there. It's been really nice to chat with you um, and enjoy the rest of your day. It's back to you, Stephen.
1: Earlier this year, we published the bairns Fuss Standards, which set out a framework to transform care, justice and recovery for children who have been victims of violent and sexual crimes. We're now going to speak with Dr Rachel Hewitt, who was part of the team that developed these standards about how the voice of young people played a key role in shaping the work. Thanks for joining us today, Rachel.
5: Hi Stephen, how are you doing?
1: Good, thank you. We now have the Scotland's first Bairns Puss. Can you explain what that is?
5: It's a really exciting development, and it's a really big milestone in Scotland's journey towards implementing this. Berns comes from the word child house. So in Iceland and in Sweden, in Scandinavia, it's known as Barna House. And what it is, it's a safe place where young people can go to have interviews, to have medical examinations, and to have their evidence pre-recorded for court. So what it does is it means that children don't have to go to lots of different places and experience that disconnect and that trauma from having a response to something that's that's already happened to them that's that's really traumatic
1: and uh, one of the key components of developing the Bairnsworth standards was including the voice of children and young people and identifying what matters to them how crucial was it to have that engagement
5: the idea about Bensouce is it's about putting children's rights and recovery first. And children have a right to participate and be involved in things that, that are important to them. One of the organisations who was working on the Bensouce that's just open is Children First. And they describe young people's experience differently to how professionals might see it. So when a young person goes to a police officer, they think they've done something wrong. If they go to a social worker, they think the parents have done something wrong. And if they go to a doctor or a nurse, they think there's something wrong with them. And looking at it from that children's perspective means that you can design a system that really puts children's rights and needs at the centre. And you need to hear that voice and you need to understand what it's like for children to experience that, to design a service that that is right for them.
1: It's interesting. So, so, So how did you do it? How did you engage with children during the development process?
5: One of the things that we did was to go to organisations where children know them and they trust them. And that's a really big part of this is having that relationship building. So we worked with six organisations across Scotland that have this expertise. Each of those organisations nominated a person who we called a link worker and their job was to be the go between between the young people and, and us. And Some young people were saying we've created our safe space, we've created our group, we want to have that, that space with just us other young people were happy to to come along and to to hear from the co-chairs and from other people. And what it was, it's about designing something that young people work for them. And it was about going at their pace, doing it in the way that they want. Sometimes they met in the evening, sometimes they built models, sometimes they did drawings. And the link workers brought that back to us. And then we translated that back to the professionals. Every meeting opened with the link workers describing what was important to young people before we even started the discussion.
3: That's
1: interesting, and 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 now that the first benservice has opened, what are your thoughts on the role that the young people have played in shaping the care that others will receive now, as as well as in the future?
5: I think one of the things that we've done is to develop standards that are children's standards. So we created a set of flashcards that we work with our designers. And The designers went out to the groups of young people, they showed them the drawing, they developed it together. The flashcards are on a, a little plastic ring, and that allows them to fiddle with it, to play with it, to talk to the support worker that's with them and give them that time and that space to do it. There's a, a lighthouse in London, which is the first Ben's Who Saw Child's house in, in England. And they have this timer. And when young people first go to it, they get shown a video. And that video at the start says, when you're ready, we're ready. And I think that is the key part of the standards. It's when you're ready, we're ready. And the last standard is a diagram of a heart with a hand in it and it says, I'm a part of it. And I think that's the key message to take away here. It's, it's all about being a part of it.
1: And, and, and lastly, then, just on, on a personal level, what did you learn about how to engage meaningfully with children and young people?
5: I think young young people do things very differently to us. And I think we had to redesign everything around the needs of young people. We couldn't expect young people to come along to our our big adult meetings, sit in conference rooms, meet during the day when a lot of them are at college or at school. And I think we had to think really differently. We had to be really innovatively and we had to look at it from the point of view of young people. If I was a young person, would I want to go to this meeting? What is it? that shows that I'm being listened to. One of the things that young people told us categorically was don't promise things that you can't deliver. How do you know you're going to do this? What is the assurance that you're going to give us? And I think having that real honesty and that real ability to think outside the box and be creative and be meet them where they are, I think is the key thing that we learned from doing this.
1: It's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. And and it's great to see that the Bairnsworth is there and there will be other ones established uh, across the country uh, in the fullness of time. Thank you so much for sharing with us um, your experiences of putting patients, uh, children and young people at the heart of the care they receive. Thank you.
5: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Stephen and Rachel. From working with children, we're now going to move to working with older people. I'm joined by Lisa McDowell, Senior Charge Nurse at the Jubilee Hospital in Grampian, to tell us about how ward staff have used a range of techniques and exercises focused on knowing patients as individuals to help improve care for patients with dementia. Lisa, you've been working with people from our organisation to improve care for people in hospital with dementia. Can you tell us a bit about that work and what it's meant for your team?
6: Yes. uh, So the overall goal of the piece of work was to enhance and improve the patient's experience from admission right through to discharge and with a priority focus on improving individualised care planning. And for us as a team, it's very important to ensure that patients get the correct care. And by doing this work, that's enabled us to to focus on that.
0: So Lisa, I understand that a key aim is to ensure that patients get care that is tailored to them as individuals. What kind of things help you to achieve that?
6: The first thing we would look at achieving that is a completing a Getting to Know Me document. This is a key piece and document that enables staff to to find out lots about the patient. It covers likes and dislikes, backgrounds, and, and what's important to them as a patient, and it really allows you to engage as a member of staff with that patient moving through their hospital journey.
0: Okay, so interestingly, I know that you've worked with a patient who benefited hugely from the introduction of memory boxes and using reminiscent activities such as plain dominoes. That patient's falls reduced by 75% as a result of their personalised care plan, which is really encouraging to hear. Can you tell us how you worked with this patient?
6: Yes, yeah, so firstly, and um, we had a patient that was admitted with dementia to our ward um, due to being unable to cope at home with lots of falls. And um, through our efforts within the first kind of six weeks of the um, admission, we had lots of falls and we really needed to work as a team to figure out how we could prevent these falls. Um, So we looked at potential triggers and noted on the Getting to Know Me document um, that it could be completed with more information. So we actually sat down with the patient's wife and we really got to know the patient as an individual. We identified that he really loved to watch TV at home and looking at the placement of the patient in our ward, we discovered that actually he couldn't see the TV from where he was. So by simply kind of moving his bed space closer to the TV, um, we suddenly realized that he was really happy to be there, to be able to view and listen to the TV, which um, initially I kind of reduced the amount of falls. We also really learned about his patient's likes and dislikes and learned through his love of dominoes. Um, We identified that a major trigger for this patient was when his wife left and he became agitated and and wondered where she was. So we were able to, by developing and and knowing about these likes and dislikes, step in as a team and be able to play dominoes and to kind of, you know, identify the triggers that his wife had left. We worked with our occupational therapy team to develop memory boxes, so we um, identified that he had a love of farming, so we put in uh, local pictures from the farming community around Huntley at the Jubilee and we were able to chat about the old times and really reminisce with the patient um, moving forward. And we looked at all this data and actually from admission through to discharge, identified that through this work and actually spending time with this patient as an individual and, and really working on what he liked, we, ident- we reduced the falls by
0: 75%. That sounds like some really positive working on there, Lisa. From your experience of working with people with dementia, how important do you think the patient voice is in delivering safe care?
6: It's the most important factor for a team because you really need to identify and and work on who they are as an individual. It allows you to identify triggers, allows you to really get to know your patient, to sit and spend time with them. And by doing these things, it really, there is a reduction in falls. So it's really about just getting to know your patient, completing the documentation, doing your individualised care planning and then moving forward there's just a clear reduction in, in falls.
0: Thanks so much for joining us Lisa.
6: No problem, thank you.
1: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast and found it reassuring to hear about the broad range of patient safety programmes where patients, families and caregivers play a key role in the safety of health and care.
0: If you want to know more about the wide range of work our organisation is doing to help improve patient safety, then you can take a look at our latest corporate strategy. The link will be in the text that sits alongside this podcast episode. And if you'd like to keep up with our work or to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Facebook. We look forward to welcoming you back soon. Bye for now.